0: to the podcast of Broadway Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and the preaching of Pastor Daniel Othman, a biblical church centered on Christ. Just exactly what the gentleman just shared with us, have a little talk with Jesus. If, if worship is nothing other than a conversation with our Lord, then let us join together corporately and have a conversation with God. I want to begin this morning uh, in... In Exodus, and so if you will, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna navigate this morning. If you got your Bible with you, open your Bible with me. I want you to come with me. I want to begin in Exodus, chapter twenty, and I need my glasses. Exodus chapter twenty. We're gonna focus very quickly on verse two. If you know Exodus twenty verse two, you know that this is where we begin the Ten Commandments. And though the Ten Commandments are given prescriptively they are given for the purpose of your preservation these are not a list of don'ts and do's for the purpose of robbing you of some otherwise wonderful life that you could be living apart from god because that you can do on your own the ten commandments are given for the purpose of your preservation to keep you to be kept by the lord your god but i don't even want to focus on the ten commandments yet it is easy to overlook verse 2 and I want to focus only on verse 2 very quickly and then we're going to move on I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery and I want you to see that for what it is it is a preamble to the Ten Commandments nothing said thereafter is going to have any significant value to you if first you don't hear the preamble the foundation on which those Ten Commandments are based and there are two I am statements made the first is, I am the Lord your God. Meaning that everything you hear after this, these ten provisions to, to keep your life well, come from the Lord your God who made you. And if you don't first grasp that wholly, the rest of this is not really going to mean anything to you. So first, know that he is the one true living God. Now the second I am statement maybe is a little more buried. Maybe a little more difficult to see. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. What he's saying is I am the Lord your God and I am your Savior. That is the foundation. That's the preamble. That is the foundation on which the Ten Commandments are based. If this is not a non-negotiable firm conviction of your life all the way back in the first testament prior to the first canon of self-revelation of God's will for our lives if this is not a foundational conviction of your life you are going to feel free to navigate the entirety of the rest of the scripture at your own will and making your own determination about what it is that you're willing to hear and not hear Live by and not live by. And conviction will be the farthest thing from your life. And you will believe that just being a believer is enough. And I'm telling you, belief is not enough. Belief is an entry point. Belief must mature from milk to meat in conviction. And that's what God has done for us before he begins to reveal his will. So I want to begin there for a moment. To be able to establish who it is that we hear from when we hear from Him. Now, as it's common for me, I like to, to begin in a bit of a preamble. So I'm going to begin in a preamble this morning. If you, um, if you were a child like I was, you, you had one of those little dot-to-dot books. You, you've seen those before. You, you connect the dots in numerical order and all of a sudden the full picture forms. We're going to connect a few dots this morning to develop a full picture. Okay? So we're going to begin here in a bit of a preamble. Several, uh, several years ago, I don't know, maybe about 20 years ago, all the way around New Circle Road out here, there was a series of billboards. And on that billboard was uh, a strikingly handsome young man from about chest up in full-dress Marine uniform with a, a piercing gaze of determination in his eyes. White cap, the, the uh, blue jacket with the gold brocade on his shoulders, the, the gold buttons of the what's it uh, the eagle, the globe, and the anchor, all the signatory of the uh, of the Marines. In the lower right hand corner of that billboard was the the Marine emblem, and across the top it said the changes forever. And when I looked at that billboard, I was inspired. Now I'm well past my service years at the time I saw that billboard, so uh, I wasn't uh, I wasn't really uh, questioning whether I was going to join the Marines or not. But when I looked at that billboard, it was it was compelling. Yeah, that's, that's a path of life, and that was inspiring to see that young man there. And I ask questions. I, I, I have a lot of conversations that never get vocalized, and the question that kept surfacing in my mind was, was kept forming in in one way, and that was, what lies beneath? As I looked at that young man, I couldn't, you, you'd travel around New Circle Road, you'd see him six, seven times. And I kept seeing that sign, and I kept saying, what lies beneath? What, what lies beneath a man like that? What makes a man willing to do what that young man does? Willing to go through what he did to train to do what he does? To be ready, and, and if you know the Marine Corps, the, the, the motto is Semper Fi, ever faithful. What, is it, what does it take to make a man like that? I made a, a, a few little lists But when I look at that young man, I know that behind that young man's piercing gaze, there were years of training. And that training broke him down from the man he was and rebuilt him stronger and under the code of the Marines to serve whenever, wherever, and for whatever purpose he was called to serve. He knew his call, he knew the order of his life, he was given strength to do what he was called to do. He was a man of great ability, and he was prepared to rise to the call whenever, whenever that call came. He was a part of the Marine Corps, Corps, Latin, body, Marine body. If you're familiar with, with the word corps that you know, um, the, the um, uh, uh, Christi, Pax Christi, Pax Christi, uh, the body of Christ. Same, same language. This young man was ready to go. And I looked at that man and I said, what lies beneath? What, what builds that man? Well, I know a little bit about it. But at the same time, it made me a little envious that that man has such a well-formed grasp upon the call of his life. And when I look at myself as a Christian, I wonder, do I have that same call? Do I have that same well-formed grasp on he who holds my life? he who holds my call, he who formed me, he who calls me to train, be ready, be ever faithful. And I struggled with that a little bit. And honestly, I looked around, and without being judgmental, but be at least observant, I saw there's a lot of us that sit in our pews every Sunday. And we struggle with what it means to live that Christian life. And if we were willing to ask ourselves of the same question, which I did, what lies beneath? What lies beneath the life of a a man of God? What lies beneath what makes him a man of God? I made a short list of of, uh, things they're not, but often deceive us in substituting. It's not your attendance in the sanctuary. That is not what lies beneath. It is not your pledge cards or your baptisms. It's not your statements of faith. It's not your committees your programs, your titles, your positions, that will all substitute in our lives very easily for what lies beneath the life of a Christian. And it will look that way to a lot of us. And we will anchor ourselves in a lot of false identity in our claim to faith if we're unwilling to ask. What lies beneath? So this morning I want to step into, I've got to watch that clock. This morning i got to step into two lives, two lives this morning that are going to help us just touch the tip of the iceberg. I, this morning is not, has, has, has no intentions of being exhausted. I, I intend to just really touch the tip of the iceberg. There is far more to go than what we can cover this morning, but I want to look at two lives this morning. If you'll navigate with me. Go to the book of Daniel, Daniel 1. Now, if you know the book of Daniel, you know Daniel is a prophet in the, in the, uh, during the exile. Daniel is a young man, but not, when I say young man, I mean not, not a young man probably not more different than that young marine that's on that billboard. Daniel is probably in his late teens. <clears throat> He's been swept into a captivity by an uh, invading king, King Nebuchadnezzar, And Daniel's life is about to be put to test. And when you ask what lies beneath, we're going to start to see a little bit about what lies beneath in Daniel's life. Daniel was cold out. If you know the history of how these things happen, when a a warring king takes another nation, they want the best of what that nation has to offer, both in its treasures, its livestock, its lands, its buildings, its wealth. But amongst the most valuable things that a a, a warring king can take from another nation as it takes a hold of it Is its people specifically the brightest and the best of its people and in this process Daniel was called out as one of the brightest and the best He was called forward. He was identified as and if we look at the language and make sure I say this right Young men without physical defect. He's got to be strikingly handsome Showing aptitude in every kind of learning. He's got to be very intelligent, well-informed, meaning he has to be current. He has to understand the sign of his times. Quick to understand. He can't let the smoke and mirrors deceive him. He has to be able to cut through the smoke and mirrors and see the core of situations. He's got to be able to have what you and I would refer to as discernment. I'm not sure Nebuchadnezzar understands the word discernment, but what you and I would know of is discernment. And that's how Nebuchadnezzar determines whether or not these young men are qualified to serve in his presence. And if you can meet this qualification, I want those guys called out. And this is what I want you to do with them. I want you to teach them in the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now the king assigned them daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Verse 5. The king assigned them daily amounts of food and wine from the king's table. I want you to make note of that. If you're inclined to underline, make note. Just put a check mark on your head, put a pin and a point. Do that. What he's doing, that's the means, not the end. That's the means to the end. Understand what he's doing. King Nebuchadnezzar is a very, very clever man. I personally make a distinction between being clever and wise. He's a very clever man. He knows what he's doing. We have the best and the brightest of a, of a, uh, of a foreign nation. These guys are capable. If, if I was on a battlefield on the opposite side of them, I would be wary of them. They're very capable guys. But they're not doing me any good by doing what they do in my kingdom. I need to do them to do what I want them to do in my kingdom. And in order to do that, I need to integrate them, assimilate them into my kingdom. And if you don't hear already an absolute relevance to your life in this fallen world in that sentence, then let me point it out. There is a fallen world with a Satan who wants nothing more than to deceive you and assimilate you into his life, his world, his vision. And you are on the opposite side of that. And he will entice you in every way that he already knows that you are susceptible. Nebuchadnezzar knows what these young men are like. They're young guys. Were any of you all at 16, 17, 18 years old ready to take your stand against the things that are most appealing, most desirable, most alluring to you? You don't have to answer me. I know the answer is no. I was there too. I struggle with some of that today, as I'm sure you do. The king assigned to them daily amounts of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Three years, Nebuchadnezzar was going to make an investment into these young men to break them down as a, marine is broken, as, a, as a young man is broken down, and then rebuild him as a marine is rebuilt as a marine into a man of Babylon. If you put it in first person, I want to take everything that is sacred to you, everything that is valuable to you, everything that you honor, everything that you have set yourself apart in your life for, I want to take that away from you. And then I want to rebuild you. I want to rebuild you as a man of my kingdom where I can take the best of your abilities and place them to work in my kingdom. Don't miss the absolute relevance to your life as you assemble in this sanctuary today. That's the world at work against you. We go to verse 8. Then Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official permission to defi- not to defile himself in this way. Now, there's a number of reasons why Daniel may not have done this, not the least of which is that he knows that Babylon serves a wide variety of gods, and all the food of the king's table is all sacrificed to the gods that, uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar serves. And Nebuchadnezzar certainly dines on food that is set aside unto his gods. And that if it's food from his table that's brought to my table, then I'm being asked to eat food that has been set aside and sacrificed to the God of Babylon. And Daniel said, and that's where the, it's where the word defiled comes in. If you look at Daniel, what Daniel says is, I mean, really, Daniel is a prisoner. Think about it for a second. You're a prisoner. In the, in, the, in the king's, uh, uh, in the king's uh, uh, um, incarceration, and the king is assigned an attendant to you, and the attendant brings you food that you're assigned to eat by the king, do you really think you have a choice? <laughs> but Daniel took a stand, and he said, no, I don't, I don't want to eat this food. He, and, and, and then he goes, it's like salt in the wound. Not only am I refusing your food, but your food will defile me. Do you hear what Daniel's saying? It's not that I just don't want your food. It's just that your food will defile me. It will pollute me. And by inverse, you're being polluted by the food that you eat. I'm not going there. I don't want to go there. Now the kings, it, we're told that I think it's right after that. Um now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. So there's an intervention of God here that says that, that allowed this guard to get past what Daniel had just said and said, okay, I, 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 I get it. And he says, but here's the problem I have. If you all don't eat this, you're going to end up looking weak and then the king's going to know and th- this is not going to go well for me. And he says, would you just eat? And he says, no, no, just test me, test me. Do this for 10 days and if I don't turn out, you know, I'll go, I'll, I'll eat your food. Daniel was showing a measure not of courage, not of belief, but of conviction. So you might ask, I do, what lies beneath the life of a man? A young young man, a boy, a boy that does not have the years of experience, the years of trial and error that many of us do, I don't see anybody in here that qualifies in the age of Daniel. We all have many, many more years than Daniel of the hard path of knowing the distinction between right and wrong, sacred and profane. And we should be much better equipped than him. Yet Daniel sees that if I take the means to the end, the food, the end will be my end the assimilation and I may have to live in this kingdom but I will not assimilate into this kingdom you are of a fallen world or in a fallen world but you are not of a fallen world you fight the same battle that Daniel did every single day and here's the distinction I want to make in the life of Daniel Daniel resolved before the point of conflict who his God was And what his God is The Lord is my God and the Lord is my Savior He resolved that before the point of conflict He was in training. He was already built. He was already broken down. He was already rebuilt He was already placed into service He resolved before the point of conflict Who his God is and that his God is his Savior and so the decisions, albeit difficult, I'm sorry, yeah, albeit not easy, are fairly easy to make. I don't have to I don't have to make up my mind at the point of the King's Guard coming in with the banqueting feast of the king. I already know. I don't have to deliberate in the in the heat of the battle where I can easily justify one way or the other. I already know I don't have to to assemble a committee and follow Robert's rules of order and start asking a whole lot of deliberative questions and come to a, a vote and a consensus about whether or not I should do this I already know I already know that this is the gateway to my fall if you want to know what lies beneath the life of a Christian, it's a lot, but I always want to touch on one of them this morning, and that is a life that does not rest on belief. Uh, just remember this, please. If you live at the level of belief, remember you used to believe something else, and then you got new information. And that new information caused you to believe what you believe. And if that's the way you live your life, the next clever thing that comes along, you will change again. But if you live at the level of conviction, then life, your life, becomes grounded in the non-negotiable, as Daniel's was. Daniel saw what the nature of this te- this test was. I got. I, I'm. I made a note to myself here. Yeah, trials come to prove your conviction. They do not come to determine your conviction. They come to prove what's already within you, not to determine whether or not it's within you. Daniel wasn't waiting for this trial to find out whether or not he stood with the Lord. He already knew he stood with the Lord. That was his conviction. I want to take one other life here. These lives are parallel. This life comes from Old Testament also in 2nd Kings 5, if you would go to 2nd Kings 5 with me Here we have we are introduced to a man by the name of Naaman now Naaman is is the captain of the guard And and honestly, uh, on such short notice I have uh, forgotten the name of the king that he was captain of the guard under but I'll get it in a minute He was captain of the guard of, of of um of uh Oh, I think it's Cyrus. I think it's Cyrus, King Cyrus. Captain of the guard is King Cyrus. The challenge with Naaman was that Naaman had leprosy. Now, if you know what leprosy was at that time, it was believed to be an outward sign of an inward shortcoming. In our our terms, it would... Wow, that that was pretty good. I I didn't ask for that, but that's pretty good. Okay, Naaman was was captain of the guard. He was... um, uh, uh, Known by anybody, if you live in a kingdom under the, under a king, you know that the captain of the guard is the executable will of the king. That everybody respects the captain of the guard in the same way that he respects the king. If the captain of the guard speaks, it's those the king speaks. If the captain of the guard does it, so the king does. If the captain of the guard tells you to move, it's those the king tells you to move. It's his surrogate. It is very good for you to know exactly who the captain of the guard is. You transgress against the captain of the guard, you transgress against the king. You lose your life. You don't do it. So get in your head who the captain of the guard is. captain of the guard's got leprosy. So everybody knows Naaman. Everybody knows Naaman's got leprosy. Everybody knows what leprosy systematically means in the life of a man. But this young lady, she was captured as a part of the um, uh, sacking of Israel. And she's now the maidservant of Naaman's wife. And Naaman, and she says, there's a man in Israel, a prophet in Israel that can help you with this. If you'll go see him. So, he goes to see Elijah. And Elijah says, you know, you dip yourself in the Jordan a few times and, and you'll be healed. Naaman's upset with that. He doesn't, you know, he, you know I, got, I got plenty of rivers where I come from. I don't need to get in your muddy river over here. <laughs> you do what you want. If you got leprosy, you want to be healed. You came to me, I didn't come to you. You want to be healed? Do what I say. Go dip yourself in the Jordan. He finally consents, and he goes, and he dips himself in the Jordan. He comes out the seventh time clean. Now, this is a miracle. There is nowhere in anybody's experience, does anybody know of a leper having been cleansed? A leper having once been leprous, now being whole, healed, healthy. That's not not a part of the economy of anybody's memory. And Naaman comes out knowing that. And he immediately recognizes that the God of Elijah is the one true God. And he has a testimony. And that testimony that he gives is is that I now know that there is one God, and that's the God of heaven, the God of Elijah. So he goes back to Elijah and he says, I want to give you a gift of appreciation. Elijah says, no, 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 no gift, no. Don't give me anything. I don't want if... uh, if your text is like my text, when we get to verse 15 in chapter 5, there may be a little heading up there that says, Gehazi's sin and its penalty. I want you to strike that if you see that. It's an editorial text, it's not scripture. But it's a misguiding of what's about to happen. Naaman now has a testimony. Testimony. And his life, his body is a witness that there is a God in heaven. And so he wants to give Elijah a gift. God says, no, 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 you don't have to give me a gift. And he says, well, then I want to take a little bit of earth from where we stand here. Where are we? We're in the physical, principally the territory of Israel. So I want to take a little earth from here. Can I take that? He said, yeah, take the earth. Yeah, you may debate on what that earth is all about, but it's not uncommon for men to take a piece of earth from a significant event in their life and store it in their house as a, as a memorial or remembrance of what took place. We don't know exactly why he wanted the earth, but that's good enough for me. But now, now comes the test. I want you to focus with me here. Naaman's about to return to his life. Start at verse 17, if you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, give me as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make a burnt offering or sacrifice to any other god but the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's the word, Yahweh, Yahweh, the one true living God of all creation. There is no other god but the God, but the Lord, Yahweh. But here's the test, but may the Lord forgive your servant for one thing When your master enters the temple of ramon to bow down he is leaning on my arm I'm sorry But may the lord forgive your servant for this one thing when my master the king Enters the temple of ramon his god And bows down and he is leaning on my arm and I bow there also When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Now I want you to see what he's asking. I just made a commitment that there is no other God in all of existence but Yahweh, the one who healed me. And yet, I now have to go back to my kingdom. And when I go back to my kingdom, I go back as the captain of the guard. And when I go back as the captain of the guard, I go back into service as the captain of the guard. And one of my responsibilities is, is that on a daily basis, when my king, the highest governing authority in my life, goes into the temple of Ramon, and know that in the temple, Ramon is another name for Baal. Or Baal. I, I don't care how you say it. It's another name for Baal who is considered the Most High God. When I go into that temple of them, the king is going to kneel before his God, and he is going to lean on my shoulder. Now, you've got to understand what that means. What that means is, as the king honors the God, I honor the God. As the king bows before the God, I honor the God. Me, Him leaning on my shoulder means that his will and my will are one as we Execute the authority of the kingdom of my king before my God. It is it is concentricity. We are in concentric unity in worship of Ramon. And when I go back, Elijah, I'm going to have to do this. And so, before I go back, I'm asking you for forgiveness. Do you see the the parallel of these two lives both of these lives Daniel and Naaman are called are called to serve consistent with their convictions Daniel made up his mind and resolved before the point of conflict who his God is and what his God is Naaman Knows that that conflict is coming, but he's not that resolved yet. In fact, he knows he's going to have to go back. Here's one of the things that I want you to see in this. Is that Naaman has to go back into the world. After Naaman is redeemed, Naaman has to go back into a fallen world. And this is where everybody knows Naaman is so important. Because if you all are the common folk of the kingdom. And Jean walks back in, having left leprous, and walks back in clean. What's the very first question you're gonna ask? This is congregational worship, it's participation time. What happened? How is it that you went away leprous and came back clean? The world's asking, and the world's asking today what the world wasn't asking last week. The question the world's asking today is, is, gee, what happened? You're a new man. You're different. To the best of our definition, you're healed. <laughs> what happened? Gene's got a testimony. Now Gene has to exercise that. Gene has to exercise that testimony, has to give a reason for the hope he has in the one true living God of all the universe whom he just the day before called Yahweh. But he knows that that's the easy part. If you are unwilling, incapable of resolving in the safety safety of periods of non-conflict, who God is, and what God is. You won't do it in times of conflict. This is the easy time. This is the safe time. We can all agree in the sanctuary of God. But we are not called to sit in here. We're called to go out there, just as Naaman did. Even if we're drug out there, just as Daniel was, to give our testimony whether it be by abstaining from the, from the temptations and the allure of this earth or forsaking an old way of life. Either way, we're called to the same. If you're asking what lies beneath the life of a Christian man, Christian woman, it's vast. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. It's a great place to start. Conviction, not believe. Conviction. I am. I am very short in preparation. I want to make sure I don't forget anything. I'm, I'm. I'm good here. We're going to close this morning. It is a. It is a non-negotiable call upon your life, to live the calling that you were broken down by the Spirit of the Lord, rebuilt by the grace of the Lord, redeemed by the Lord. I mean, I mean, just, just briefly, because Daniel had to answer this question. Um, uh, Naaman ultimately would have to answer this question. Yeah, honestly, we're not given the end of Naaman's life. We don't know what he does. I think that's intentional. We know what Daniel does, and I think that's intentional. But if, you're, if you live an authentically redeemed life, you've got to answer two questions. What am I saved from, and what am I saved unto? And if you can't answer those questions for yourself, you can't answer them for anybody else. When you leave this sanctuary and you head out into the ways and means of this world, you will not be able to answer them for somebody else. What are you saved from, and what are you saved unto? You are saved first and foremost from you. You are not saved from hell. You are not saved from Satan. You are not saved from internal condemnation. Those are all just the products of what you are saved from. You are saved from you. You have been given the privilege of determining, as Naaman did, there is one God in all of the universe. And that is the Lord. You are first and foremost saved from you. And what are you saved unto? The eternal communion with the one true living God. That's what you're saved unto. So if you can't answer those two questions for you, not agree with me. I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm asking you to do the hard work. Spend time in the trenches of boot camp at Paris Island as the Marines do. Dig deep. Find out what the metal of a Christian really looks like. And then submit yourself to your brothers and your sisters to sharpen you. You, You're familiar with um, the proverb, as iron sharpens iron, so shall one man sharpen another. Let me tell you the truth about that proverb. When iron sharpens iron, sparks are going to fly. There's heat, there's impact, there's grinding. But every one of those sparks... It's a piece of the iron that is not a part of the blade, and it's got to go. And God knows that the only way that you get every part of that iron that is not a part of the blade off of what will ultimately be the blade is by impact, grinding heat. It is not easy taking a man out of the world and rebuilding him, restoring him to the perfection that he originally created us in, in his likeness and in his image sanctified set apart holy unto him it will take time and effort and that is what you are called to we do have to close this morning over the course of the past week since we gathered last it's entirely possible that the Lord is, has been working on you on one part of your life or another I would ask that that, uh, that you think for a moment do I need to do business with God I'm going to ask you that if you need to do business with God, this altar is open. Raphael, would you come join me for a minute? Would you come? This altar is open. If you, if you need to do business with God, come this morning. Raphael's here to greet you. As we assemble before the Lord, and bear our hearts open to him to be changed, to be completely transformed. Take a moment with God this morning.